0: There's another one you don't want
1: to hear. Frankly, the July. One, two, three, set, go. You are tuned in to the Power Chord Hour right here on 107.9 WRFA, as well as the Power Chord Hour podcast. However, you are listening to this or watching this on YouTube, thanks for checking it out. Very excited. I know I've uh, been gone for a while, but we're back with quite a strong one. Very happy we we'll be talking to Justin Perkins on today, ep- today's episode, owner of Mystery Room Mastering. Uh, one of the big things we're going to be talking about, he did the mastering on the upcoming replacements release, Tim, the Let It Bleed edition out September 22nd on Rhino Records. In addition to that, I mean, Justin has done mastering work on all the, uh, I mean, if you're a replacements fan, the re-releases last couple years, pleased to meet me, don't tell a soul, sorry, ma, all those good ones. He's done work on those, lots of uh, good stuff to get into, so that is what we're going to do. Justin, how you doing?
0: I'm doing well. How are you?
1: Doing good. I really, like I was telling you, I'm, ex- I'm excited to have you on. I mean, obviously, a hu- I'm a huge Replacements fan, so fun to talk about that. But I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of your music and what you do mastering and all of that. So happy to just kind of talk about it all with you. So I mean, I, I guess let's start off with Mystery Room Mastering. I mean, how long has that been up and running now? I, know that, I mean, you, you run that. You are, as far as I know, you are basically Mystery Room Mastering. I mean, how long has that kind of existed now? How long have you been running that?
0: Yeah, it's kind of a dumb name. I didn't expect it to be such a long lasting studio when I thought of it. But, you know, I had been recording and mixing bands for over a decade, you know, starting going back to being in high school and even middle school. Um, And as we got close, I think 2009 is when I officially opened the mastering studio. Um, You know, I, I had left Smart Studios in Madison doing recording and mixing and moved to Milwaukee and did a little freelancing here and there, but an existing mastering studio fell in my lap. You know, it was already built out. I didn't have, I had to, I had to provide the equipment and, and all that stuff, but this previous mastering engineer was moving to the East coast and said, do you want to rent my room? I'm, you know, he owned the building and said, um, do you want to rent my space? Cause I know you're kind of getting into mastering. So 2009 is when I officially Registered the business officially with the government and all that stuff, and started calling it that, and started making the um, intentional transition into mastering specifically instead of being a jack of all trades. I said, I'm going to focus on just mastering. And it took a number of years, a couple of years to, you know, I was still mixing some of my favorite bands and stuff I couldn't say no to. But for the most part, I'm like, I was trying to do only mastering. And after a few years, I would say I was, you know, 80% mastering and now I'm 110% mastering. Um, so 2009 basically is when that shift occurred.
1: Wow. I I guess I didn't realize you'd been, uh, at least, I mean, I guess I know how long you've been mastering, but I didn't realize mystery room had been around so long. As far as like mastering goes, how long have you been doing mastering work? Obviously you were doing it before, before this. I mean, when did you, when did you kind of start doing mastering?
0: Well, the thing is, for, for those that don't know what mastering is, the last person that touched it mastered it. So I was doing a lot of low-budget local bands, you know, out of high school and early 2000s. And some of them didn't have the budget for proper mastering. Um, and also logistics were a factor. This is before the internet was capable of sending a whole album through the internet in high resolution you know you could this is back in the napster era where you were lucky to download the worst sounding mp3s so that even that took half a day so a lot of bands i was working with up in like green bay wisconsin they didn't have the budget for mastering so i would be the default mastering engineer and i didn't necessarily know all that it entailed but i had some mastering software that helped me finish the records and then as my projects got better i got good at convincing people into using a proper mastering engineer. But, you know, in the tw- in the 2000s, I was kind of learning the basics of mastering and getting some practice repetitions into mastering albums and seeing how that worked out. And then towards the end of the 2000s, people were asking me to just master their album. And that's sort of what pushed me into even considering starting a, a dedicated mastering studio is starting to get those emails and calls about just mastering albums because my experiences with mastering was recording and mixing an album and then having to also do the mastering you know the quasi mastering as best as I could Um, and once I started to focus on mastering specifically I realized how much more involved it is than I used to think it was you know uh, when I was handling the mixing and recording you know there's a whole other layer of detail that you can focus on as a mastering engineer when that's all you do
1: no that make that makes sense i mean mastering it is like like you mentioned i don't think a lot of people do truly like i feel like i kind of know what mastering is but if you put me on the spot to try to like explain it to someone yeah it's not as uh, i feel like cut and dry as like engineering or doing production and stuff which also like with that i mean the behind the scenes things side of music i mean recording producing engineering that kind of stuff were you always i i'm assuming with stuff like that i mean were you always dabbling in that even with your with your own music or did that come later on because i'm assuming you probably started playing music and somewhere in there later on you start kind of the engineering the production the recording are you always kind of dabbling in that
0: well early on i we i had to learn it out of necessity you know we were in seventh eighth grade and we couldn't really get to a recording studio we didn't have driver's licenses and back then studios were busy and didn't necessarily take eighth graders seriously you know if they want to book time and we never, probably didn't have enough money for studio time so out of necessity i learned how to record us on a cassette eight track a task camp studio with uh, so this, this would be like mid 90s so I never wanted to be a recording engineer, but out of necessity, I became the person that paid the most attention to how it operates when the guy dropped it off that we rented it from at our house our practice, our parents base, our drummer's basement, basically. It's where we would practice and ended up recording some basic stuff. And that's when other bands started to hear it, what I was doing for our band and ask me to record them. And I never set out to be an engineer Or mix engineer, it just sort of happened by accident, and so I was doing it early on. And then after high school, I had a couple odd jobs, but ended up working at a pretty great studio in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I don't know if you know the band Boris, the Sprinkler.
1: Oh yeah, I love Boris. Yeah,
0: Yeah. that's where they did all their albums in the nineties. It was called Simple Studios, and the guy was just very good. I mean, at the time, he had the the studio was in his basement too. Um, by the time I started working there, he had moved it to a bigger warehouse, which was cool because it had a huge room for doing drums. So you could get these big drum sounds with room mics. But, you know, he, he was just, he just did great recordings. And he taught me a lot about recording and how to get things to sound a certain way when I got out of high school and started working at his studio.
1: Now I guess I mean, and we get into this like with the timeline and kind of your career and everything. But like, I mean, on top of doing like mastering production, all that, I mean, you were in a couple bands. I mean, I I play the Obsoletes on the radio show. Love the Obsoletes. Know you're in Yesterday's Kids bands like that. Like in this timeline, are you kind of like like are they are they kind of going at the same time? Like, are you working in studios and doing that? while i mean like with the obsoletes and stuff or are they kind of going at the same time you're doing production for a while then you get into the band then you get back into it like does all this kind of exist around the same time or you know i mean i mean i know it's a long timeline but i guess i'm trying to like put it put what you're doing all together
0: yeah it kind of went hand in hand um the first yesterday's kids release um I didn't record that. I, I recorded the demos, but but I knew that if we were going to even consider releasing it, we had to go to Simple Studios. So we did our first EP in like 2001 at Simple Studios. It was meant to just be demos, but um, Ben from Screeching Weasel heard it and decided to just release it as is. We got rid of a couple songs, but um, you know it was really meant to just be demos. We did them pretty fast at Simple Studios. And like I said, I knew that, it would be better to go to a real studio and do that instead of me trying to do it. And I didn't really, I was pretty hands off. I was just played, um, you know, I was just a musician for that session. Basically. I didn't have a lot of input on the engineering side of it. By the time we did the second yesterday's kids release, which um, came out on panic button records, but we were basically working with lookout records at that point, they were running panic button. So lookout gave us a good budget and Simple Studios had just moved, so we had this huge space to work with, and we took our time. I, um, The owner of Simple Studios engineered the basic tracks, and then myself and Tim from I- yesterday's kids, we took many weeks just experimenting with adding stuff, probably a little too much stuff, but we we, we explored a lot, and then Eric from Simple Studios mixed it, but at, at that time, I was doing a lot of recording for other bands which is perhaps part of why we didn't do much touring because i was more busy in the studio and kind of got a sense that it was easier to make a living being an engineer than in a band and yesterday's kids broke up not too long after the second record and the Obsoletes was really just me recording demos at at simple studios between other sessions to a drum machine yeah because it was up in uh you know, it was about an hour away from where I lived. The studio didn't have internet, which at the time wasn't a weird thing. It was, you know, 2003, it was in a warehouse. It was kind of a DIY punk studio. Um, I used to have to go to the library to check my email like once a day and stuff like that. When I would stay, so I would stay overnight there a lot because it was, I didn't want to drive home for an hour just to drive back for an hour. Um, so there was a shower there and everything. And I would just, you know, after, sometimes like when sessions would get done early enough, I would maybe record a song to a drum machine and a mutual friend introduced me to John Phillip, who was the obsolete drummer, his band, the Benjamins had just broken up or stopped playing. And, you know, she said, you guys like similar music you should meet and whatever. So I had him come up and play drums to some of these demos that I had been working on to a drum machine. And he was such a good drummer. Uh, yesterday's kids drummer kind of struggled to play to a metronome. And that's a controversial topic of using a metronome or a click track. But the fact that these songs were recorded to a drum machine and John could play to a metronome meant that he could add real drums to these um, demos that I did to a drum machine. And, and they turned out cool, I guess. And he was really pushing to play live shows. so He said, we should start a band. And that's how the obsoletes came about. Um, and we started out as a five piece band with the whole, like I played acoustic guitar and sang, and we had a organ player and all this. But it basically regressed back to a three piece, like yesterday's kids was. I played bass, I, I moved over to bass, Tim Schweiger on guitar and John on drums, just because it was easier, I think, to play shows. And I was almost going to say easier to rehearse, but it was actually easier to not rehearse because with three people, there's less to go wrong. So we could kind of just wing it a little more uh, live and not have to figure so much stuff out at rehearsals and stuff.
1: You know, kind of, kind of with that. Cause that's interesting. Like I love the obsoletes and it. I think I told you that. I mean, I discovered you guys in like 2017, 2018 long after you've broken up. So like, I had no clue you were ever a five piece or anything like that. I mean, for people who don't know, I mean, you had the band put out one record. I mean, when you were that five piece, were those sessions, did it ever, when you were getting that record around, were you were you writing and recording still as a five-piece at that point? Or by the time it was time to do that record, it, it was a three-piece and you were writing as a three-piece?
0: Yeah, by the time we did the album, it was a three-piece. I played bass on the album. I might have played some acoustic and extra guitar parts, but we were basically back to a three-piece. I mean, the problem was is the demos I did, I was just screwing around. you know. I had a pedal steel player come in. I had an organ player dobro i was just kind of like goofing around trying to understand how to record other types of music besides pop punk basically you know like what else can what other stuff can we add and how can it sound so i was kind of just experimenting around and and that's how the band started You know, and then we did for the obsolete's record we did have some auxiliary players come in and do some organ and and a little bit of pedal steel and stuff but I think we kind of made it so we could still play live as a three piece and it worked, you know, because the, the, you know, we could still do, the, do all the harmonies and uh, the nuts and bolts were there. Um, but the album was based. I, I remember playing bass on the album for sure. So we just did it as a three piece and added some of what I had done on the demos, but not everything. And we did that on tape because oh, at really? the time, at the time I was, The the studio I worked at had a PC and I didn't have any control. I wasn't a big computer guy back then. I am now, but the guy had a a Windows PC to record on, and I was just getting tired of it being a pain. To it was constantly had issues, so I'm like, you know, I want to make a record on tape. I know tapes harder, but it's not going to crash on us and all this stuff. So we did it on like a a one inch twenty four track tape machine which was fine. It was actually a harder album to mix because we didn't have any automation on the mixing console, you know, like nowadays in pro tools, you can just, you can, you could mix Bohemian Rhapsody and pro tools with as one person. Cause you just draw it all in. And, you know, it, but back then we needed like two or three people there to mix the songs, turn faders up and down as the song played, you know, there was no automation cause we did it all on tape. So that, um, that was that had pros and cons to it, but it got done, and it is what it is.
1: How long did that record take to record? Like how long? How long was that? Uh, the know, sessions for?
0: Probably on and off for a couple months, really. You know, it helped that I worked at the studio because I got free or reduced recording time, and I engineered it a lot of it. So we did have another friend engineer the basic track, so I could play bass out in the live room and not have to be uh, using you know be multitasking and stuff like that but
1: this stuff it, it is it's very interesting to me because i mean i'm a, I'm a fan of the band but like really know none of the backstory i know i know the players i don't know much besides that so it's all kind of interesting i was also like wondering with the obsoletes like did you i know you said like with yesterday's kids you didn't really get to tour a lot what about with the obsoletes i mean did the band did you tour did you play out a lot or was it mostly kind of around like the wisconsin area
0: it was mostly regional i mean we started out great our first like run of shows was with super drag oh really Uh, yeah i think it was like maybe three shows with super drag that's how we started out you know we had no album out or nothing we're just like hey we're a new band and we got to open for super drag it was great um we mostly did regional stuff um i I don't know if you know ben perlstein but he uh he was just starting to work for a management company in Minneapolis that was managing like Soul Asylum. Um, I, it might've just been their booking agent actually, but either way, Ben was involved with a lot of live stuff for bands like Soul Asylum. And he was using some of those resources to book us and it, it didn't really go too far. Um, you know, we we did like one tour. It was not very good for the most part, a couple good shows here and there, but we mostly just played around the Midwest and that's that was some of those shows were really fun uh the touring it we had just had no business touring at that point we just had nothing nothing really to promote and you know no one you know the shows were fairly sparsely attended for the most part
1: how about like like with the band i mean i guess i guess too like thinking of the timeline like what like where did the obsoletes exist i guess because like i'm trying to think that record came out like O three
0: around right? That was like O
1: three,
0: yeah, two thousand three or four. You know, John, our drummer, John and and Ben, they had really strong Milwaukee connections to a lot of the venues, so it's very easy for us to play at some of the better small and mid sized clubs in Milwaukee, and we actually did very well. You know, we could it, we could fill up most of the mid sized clubs either headlining or co headlining, and you know, oh. the, the the venues would be packed and. People would, you know, make come home with a little bit of money, and it was and it was fun. So we did that for quite at least a handful of years, but we never got around to making a second record. We recorded some demos um, that we still could release at some point as maybe not a, an official record, but just just to get them out there. Uh, we we did them at a, at a studio in Oshkosh, Wisconsin that I could just never get to sound great. I don't know what the problem was with that studio, but. But, you know, the songs are there for people that want to hear them. It's 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 okay, but it's not a finished record or anything. It's just some better than maybe above-average demos and stuff like that. So we never really did our second record. We kind of fizzled out. Um, John started playing with this band called Limbeck, who are a very busy touring band. They had um, somehow needed a drummer, and John really liked Limbeck and knew all their songs. So he jumped in with Limbeck. I was just getting busier recording bands and ended up moving to Madison to work at smart studios. So the band just sort of took a backseat uh, around 2008 or so, maybe 2006 or seven, really roughly like a
1: five year run then for the obsolete somewhere kind of in there, maybe around five years.
0: Yeah. I'd say four or five years, you know, we could have done another record and kind of repeated everything, but I don't know. I, I never really enjoyed touring. Very much, um, at least the way we were touring at the time and ended up sticking in the studio. I mean, the ironic part is they end up joining Screeching Weasel, and we did not a lot of touring, but a lot of shows. But at that point, you know, you're flying out, you're staying in hotels. Oh, um, yeah, you're not easily. touring. Yeah, I mean, I'm allergic to cats, and like, I swear, anyone that's going to let you stay at their house on tour has at least one cat, um, you know, and we weren't really. At a level where we could do hotels and stuff. Um, so, yeah, we just kind of fizzled out, and John did Limbeck. Tim did some other stuff. And, you know, Tim and John ended up playing with Tommy Stinson, and, you know, he started doing some live stuff. But since um, Tommy plays bass, I wasn't really needed for that situation until a little bit later. But basically, I just kind of went it, and that's about the time I started Mystery Room Mastering, is, you know, 2009. Now I'm like realizing that this could be a career instead of just a a hobby or uh something I do to get by. It's actually starting to turn into a an actual job
1: that's interesting that's really interesting, like including kind of with that timeline then like like you were saying later on, it would get into that I mean you're playing with tommy and everything but like so so was there was there any pull of that because you're talking about like it's becoming more of I can do the you know I can do the the uh mystery room mastering i can do this for a living but i mean is there still that like offers to go play or go play with bands and do stuff i mean is there a little of you have to think this out or is it just like no i really don't want to play with bands i just want to kind of do more of the behind the scenes stuff or is there any conflict with that
0: it would have to be a pretty big offer i mean not to get too far ahead but you know what when i wanted to play with tommy stinson because i like his songs and he's a lot yeah, of
1: people blame you for that he's a, lot, he's a really
0: really great guy and easy to work with and very totally cool with everything um but it got to the point uh, where the tour the the long weekends here and there turned into like two and three week tours and i'm like i just can't leave my studio for that long uh you know and at that when i was at that point i was married too so there's family life Involved with all that too. Um, In 2008, I was not married, but my point is, I just kind of knew that it was going to have to be one or the other. It was too hard to be playing a lot of live music and then have a studio at the same time or have any kind of business to run at home where you just need to be there because. I don't know, especially with mastering, but even in mixing, you know, if you if you're known as the person that's only around sometimes and someone wants to make a record, you, you're probably not gonna get that call because they're just gonna assume you're on tour or too busy and stuff like that. So I just I don't know if it was conscious or not, but I basically just stopped playing live. Um, but it's the same thing with Screeching Weasel. Um Ben from Screeching Weasel was like, Hey, I'm gonna do some solo shows. Do you want to play bass? And I was like, Okay, those will probably be pretty good shows, and I already kind of had the songs ingrained in my head um, from listening to them in high school. So it was easy. And then uh, sure enough, that turned into long weekends. We never did any touring because Ben also doesn't really like touring. Um, that ended There's a whole other story why that ended. Um, but, you know, basically it'd have to be a pretty big offer at this point for me to go play live again. If it was a one-off or a long weekend, I would do it. It'd be very hard for me to join a active band that's tour you know doing two and three week tours um fairly often because th- i'm already backed up a lot as it is i can't afford to not financially but time-wise i can't really afford to um be less productive in the studio than you know things just back up really quickly with mastering
1: No, that makes sense i mean you've gotten to the point now i mean looking at the titles and stuff you've done it's like go to a van tour It'll like sleep on someone's floor or something like that versus, you know, mastering. Yeah, no, I I think at this point you gotta, you gotta, you can do a whole lot more with the mastering and kind of that side of things. I, I don't think I can blame you for not wanting to go out there and road dog it or anything like that.
0: Yeah. You know, I know Tommy, we traveled comfortably. I did like a week long tour with Paul Collins somewhere in there too, like 2012, 13. And he's a little bit more of a DIY. I mean, we slept on a lot of people's floors. Um, on that, that little week long tour, a couple of hotels, but that was sort of the eye opener. Like, man, I'm not, I'm not cut out for this anymore. You know, I'm not 19 years old anymore.
1: So let's, uh, let's uh, like, let's get into that with, with playing with Tommy and everything. I mean, when, when later on, did you kind of uh, get into that fold? Like you were talking about Johnny and everything kind of getting into there. When, when do you kind of get into the mix? When do you start playing with him? You know, all, all of that.
0: You know, it's funny. I actually had to look it up because I thought it might come up. Um, it looks like it was November of 2012. Oh, wow. Could be 2011, depending. I think it was 2012, though. Um, basically, John and Tim were playing with Tommy a little bit already. He was on bass. John was on drums. Tim was on guitar. they were doing some stuff. I think they did South by Southwest because I think he had one of his solo records coming out at the time. Um he's doing shows but basically and kind of what i realized with the obsoletes is it's a lot more fun or easier or traditional or whatever to play guitar and sing lead vocals uh, playing bass and singing lead vocals is doable you know we on with fin lizzie and and motorhead and stuff but it's just not as natural so at some point you know tommy really wanted to play guitar and sing his songs so he needed a bass player and um yeah i think it was fall of 2012 or 11 um guns and roses was touring and sh- playing chicago and he wanted to do an in-store at reckless records oh, nice. chicago for for his new record it might have been one man mutiny or uh i guess you could look it up online. It came
1: out around that time i would say that era probably yeah like yeah
0: so he's doing these in stores you know on the guns N' roses tour he would just find a record store and do in stores and they were usually acoustic or um his wife at the time might sing backing vocals but being in chicago me um i actually don't know if john was in nashville yet at that point but me and tim were in Milwaukee. i just drove down and uh we did an in-store at reckless records and i had never met him and we had never rehearsed i met him like in the street And then 20 minutes later, we're playing a mini set at Reckless Records. And it wasn't as, it it wasn't, uh, I I wasn't really nervous because I had played with Tim and John so much already, you know, it was kind of like pretty comfortable. Um, And with Paul Collins, you know, I learned Paul's songs and met him at soundcheck and that night we're playing a show. So I was kind of getting used to just learning songs, winging it, you know? So anyways, we did a, in store at uh reckless you know that evening before a guns and roses show and then maybe a year or two later he hired the Obsoletes to be his backing band for an east coast run it was pretty sure it was like a week baby um but it was a lot of fun to do that you know we met at his house and did a day or two of rehearsal and um uh, you know he was really excited like he was just running around running around the house, you know, looking for this particular cord to hook up his PA for the vocal, you know, just reminded me of being in high school, like trying to get a vocal PA set up for band practice, you know, just nothing fancy, but you know, he's just really excited and yeah. You know about having a band to, to go do some shows with um, especially low key. I mean, he was kind of at the tail end of guns and roses world, which is a whole different thing. So to just kind of get in a, a little van and, you know not necessarily wing it but do it pretty low-key i think was exciting and interesting to him and uh so we did that week and then things just kind of fizzled out i don't even know what happened exactly to be honest with you um but he started playing with other people um uh, frank from guns and roses and cat popper luther dickinson he had a couple different live bands evolving slowly and uh but what happened was like 2015, 2016. He was supposed to play a Midwest run, and Ben, his manager, asked if I would um, do do live sound. And I hate doing live sound, but I have done live sound for bands like um, The Promise Ring, who are from Milwaukee. Oh, nice! They did, some, they did some reunion shows, and I I don't even consider myself a live sound person, but. Um, when you play nice enough venues, you can kind of lean on the house venue live sound person to like get it up and running. And I'm basically there to mix the show. You know, I know how the songs should sound. I know when this person does a solo or that person sings backing vocals. And I know not to put a ton of pink Floyd delay on the lead vocals because uh, <laughs> Cause some sound guys get a little carried away or sound persons anyway. So I'm like, okay, I'll do sound for your week of shows in the Midwest. It could be fun. It's January. And, um, Kat Popper who was supposed to play bass had some sort of health thing come up and she couldn't do the tour. So it became actually, instead of doing sound, can you play bass? Cause it's a little more important to have a bass player than a sound person. So I learned up the most recent songs and, uh, uh, you know, did bass for that tour. And that was kind of the very beginning of the reformation of bash and pop. We did uh, a handful. We did, I don't even know how many shows we did, but we did a decent amount of shows as Tommy Stinson. And at one point we uh, were playing in Canada and decided to just call it bash and pop from there on out. Cause Tommy was working on what became the next bash and pop record um it's it called anything can happen anything could happen and uh he just kept getting comments that those songs sounded like the first bash and pop record and he wasn't at the, it didn't start out as a bash and pop r- record but oh really he kept, he kept getting that feedback of hey this this group of new songs you have sounds like bash and pop and he just happened to have you know a band a rock band again you know me and steve salvage and joe so um yeah it just became uh, bash and pop from there on out and the records started coming together. Um you know he was most of it's basically all recorded at his house in, in uh, why am I blanking anywhere in Hudson. So it just kind of all came together naturally and all of a sudden it's bash and pop and there's a new record and I'm still playing bass. I actually didn't play bass on the bash and pop record. Oh you I didn't could, no I, I could have flown out for a weekend or so of sessions but I'm like you know Tommy's a pretty good bass player I think he can handle it Um, I mixed the bash and pop record and I played a lot of like acoustic guitar and tambourine and backing vocals because you know the way that started was he had like two songs done Uh, what was it called Not This Time and one other one came out as a 7 inch and I was not this is at the point in time where I'm just mastering but Ben Perlstein was like, hey, Tommy's got two songs that he wants to put on a seven inch. Can you mix them? And I'm like, man, I'm really not mixing anymore. I don't really like mixing. It's a pain, but OK, I'll do it. So I did these two songs and I and Ben was like, if you hear any backing vocals or something, just add it. So I did a couple harmonies and Tommy, I liked it. And uh, that was the beginning of the next record. Uh, so I did a lot of like bells and whistles and stuff on that record, but I didn't play bass on it. Because some of it was already done before I was involved. And then the rest of it, you know, he played bass on because he did it at his house. There was no point in me flying out there to play bass, you know, when, when he could do it. So,
1: Did you have any, like, saying, like, the sequencing or any, any of those kind of those behind the scenes? Because uh, it doesn't sound like you had, like, a, pro- a producer per se, right? There wasn't, like, a producer involved so much.
0: No, I mean, Tommy basically recorded it all at his house a lot of it pretty live to be honest you know cat popper played on a lot of it um and even the tracks that he played bass on you know they probably just recorded them without bass you know like guitar kind of jammed it out without a bass player then he just added the bass later um so no i wouldn't say i produced it i would say i mixed it and did a little bit of editing you know sometimes he would send me a handful of vocal takes and it's like okay which take do we use A little bit of vocal comping as they call it where you get a handful of takes and you decide okay the you know this line on this take is the best one and this line on that take is the best one and kind of put it together um things like that i wouldn't say that i produced it though um you know the thing is is like the first bash and pop record was done in a world-class studio with a with a major label type budget and that record was done in his in tommy's house in like a dining room with no acoustic treatment and a lot of bleed and really nobody producing. You know, it was kind of just produced by whatever was going on. You know, it was kind of a fun he wanted it to be a fun plug it in and do it how the replacements used to do it, you know. Don't overthink it. Just plug in and and go. So it wasn't really picked over and thought out as much as like the first bash and pop record. And I just love the on the first bash and pop album, I love the drum room sounds that they got on that record. I mean, not to get too nerdy, but you know, the drums just sound amazing on that record. Cause really they do. did, they did it in a big room and they could put microphones across the room and you're just not going to get that kind of sound in a, in a house, in a dining room kind of situation. So it's very apples and oranges. So it, it was what it was, but um, yeah, that record did okay. So then we got, then we started with the two and three week tours and I did a, a few of them but I'm like I just can't keep doing this because you know I got stuff going on at home and I was just thinking long term like so someone else took my place for a little while um, and bash and pop on bass and then that kind of fizzled out and then Tommy's transitioned into what he's doing now which is Cowboys in the Campfire I don't know if you've heard that record but it's oh, yeah it's uh, basically him and ship um, they were doing these uh, duo shows. Tommy would play acoustic, Chip would play electric and lap steel and stuff. And that's just a more economical touring vehicle for this day and age. Even before the pandemic, you know, with with how, how with how poorly streaming is paying out, and and the the other thing with that 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 seven inch I mixed for Tommy, I was going to say that was back when you could get seven inches made in like a month or two. Um, Now it takes a long time to get vinyl made. Um, But I just did that. Those initial two songs as a quick, you know, mix them quick so we can put out a seven inch for this upcoming tour kind of thing. Um, But the record came out on fat possum records and, you know, they did as much of a push as they could as far as, you know, publicity and PR stuff and doing the Colbert show and stuff like that. But, there you know they got a really good offer to open for the psychedelic furs which would have been a really kind of gravy tour because it was a nice theaters opening set so you know 30 to 40 minutes tops and you're done in theory i would have loved to do that tour but i was coming off of, of a number of two or three week tours which for for the other guys in the band you know that's all they kind of do is they're, they're built for touring you know steve's in the hold steady they're touring at one point at least we're a touring machine you know joe was in mighty mighty boston you know they're just so used to touring and being on the road whereas for me that's not what i'm used to and i could only handle so much touring before i had to make a decision
1: no it's kind of it's kind of funny i saw bash and pop i want to say it was either the first show without you or the second show without you in pittsburgh because yeah I, I thought you were playing and then i got there and it was uh someone else but was that the last time then? Because I was like 2017. Was that like the last time you really did any touring or really? Because like that did seem, I, I mean, I was, I, I love that Bash and Pop record. I was following the band and everything during that time. You were busy. I mean, he did. I feel like you toured a lot. The band toured a lot in 2017 and did a lot. Like, was that the, was that the last time you really did shows and played out and all that? Was that the last time or, you know, yeah. since have you?
0: Yeah, my last show it was actually in 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 London at Hyde Park. We oh, played wow. a big we played a big festival with Green Day and the Hives and Rancid, I think, and it was a lot of fun. Um, but I haven't touched my bass since then since I flew home. Um, and I remember I wanted to get home to see Tom Petty play at Summerfest here in Milwaukee, and I did. And that ended up being Tom's last tour, so I'm glad I got to see him do one last. Summerfest show in Milwaukee, but yeah, I just, that's when I realized I just, I'm not cut out for playing live music anymore. Um, and now I have a bit of a mobile mastering rig where if I had to travel, I could kind of pull it off, but I don't really want to go back down that path unless it's, it had to be a pretty big offer that I couldn't refuse. Um, and not to say that Tommy isn't a big offer and I don't love his music and like work, I like working with him a lot. But um, you know, he had a different someone that he had played with. The person that replaced me had played bass with him, like previously, maybe in the late two thousands or early, yeah, probably in the late two thousands or mid two thousands. So it wasn't, you know, I knew that I wanted to make sure that someone could take over that was familiar. I didn't want to leave him hanging, but I just had to make a decision of of what I was going to do because. I just couldn't do those long back-to-back tours anymore.
1: Now, kind of, kind of going off that, I mean, obviously quite a big, uh, Tommy Stinson connection there. I mean, is that, is, is the Tommy Stinson connection? I mean, is that kind of how, because again, you've been doing tons of work last few years on all these replacements re-releases. I mean, is that kind of how that came about through Tommy?
0: Yeah. Indirectly. It wasn't like Tommy said, Hey, I want, we want you to master these replacements reissues. What happened was I had mixed and mastered the Bash and Pop record, and it was what it was. Somewhere in there, you know, I had re reiss- I had remastered the first Bash and Pop album with some bonus tracks, which you could only get on CD from Omnivore Records. They didn't get the license to do put it up on streaming. So, disc oh, if really? you're a Bash and Pop fan, I think the only way to get the bonus disc is an actual CD purchase from Omnivore. It's not on streaming yet. Oh, really? Anyways, I did a deluxe edition of the first Bash and Pop record, um, and I remember it kind of coming up in conversation casually. But this is when they were getting ready to put out Live at Maxwell's, and at one point, Tommy asked me that if I would if I would mix Live at Maxwell's, um, and I was kind of hoping it, I didn't have to because I didn't have time at that point in time for anything. Then it turns out that they found a good mix of it that someone had done in the 2000s and they were going to work from that. Um, but I didn't know any of this stuff really. And I, I didn't even really want to get involved with that because I was pretty busy touring and doing my other work. I just kind of let it... I didn't push too hard to do the mastering on Maxwell's, but it turned out that there was some things that certain people weren't happy with with the mastering. Not so much with the band, but some some online comments and this and that um i still think it's a great sounding live album it's amazing that amazing that they found it if you really dig into the weeds there were some technical things that um prompted bob Mayer to reach out to me to master what would be the next project which is dead man's pop so that was my first actual replacements project uh was dead man's pop and again it wasn't like tom it wasn't like tommy said hey Justin needs to master this. It was just he trusted me to do his records, and um, it just kind of worked out naturally. Where, where they realized maybe for these reissues they sh- they need to hire someone that's a little closer to the band that kind of underst- understands the band and is going to put in the extra, you know, ten percent to make sure that it's as good as it can be instead of it just being another day job you know another job and yeah. move on because mastering is so fast paced i mean a live album might take two days but you know your typical studio album you can master an album in a day um the box sets take a little longer because there's so many songs like the sorry mob box set was 100 songs <laughs> it's actually 104 songs i think we took four of them off or they're only available on like a a flexi seven inch or something but you know,
1: know the one you're talking about
0: yeah The box sets take a long time because A, there's so many songs and B, usually the demos and outtakes are like challenging sources. You know, it's like old tapes with a lot of dropouts that need a lot of restoration work um, and they just all sound so different. So the box sets take a while, but yeah, for the most part, um, I forgot even what what I was talking about, but basically I kind of earned Bob's trust through doing Tommy's, uh, bash of pop record and some other things and um so I, I started out with dead man's pop and that seemed to go well and i've been doing the doing them ever since and as you mentioned uh t- the new tim remix just got announced last week
1: yes very much and, like
0: you know it's it's I think most people are liking it. I've been reading a little bit of the comments. You know, there's always the people that are going to be attached to the original mix because of that's how they remember it. You know, they've been listening to it for decades now. It's got some romance and nostalgia to it, but I do think, you know, you know, from a technical standpoint, the new mixes are just night and day difference. And um, even, you know, some people were wondering, you know, you know, left of the dial was actually done in a different session that I believe Alex Chilton produced, um, than the rest of the record. So people are wondering if the weird drum sounds that Tommy and Ramon got are, are baked into the recording. And I would say for the most part, they're not, I mean, the whole record basically sounds like a whole new record. You know, the drums sound good and normal, you know, and, uh, it overall just has so much more power and beef and, um, a lot less reverb
1: not so, that's not a bad thing less reverb. yeah
0: i mean not to get too far into it. i mean there, there could have been maybe a happy medium in between where it, you know it's it's all personal taste at this point but i mean this gives you a, a much more better idea of what the band sounded like at the time you know similar to maxwell's you know it's such a raw live at maxwell's is such a raw recording in a good way it's just pure it's just like here's the band you can hear one guitar on the left and one on the right and it's it's very just bare bones and it's it, and that's why it's great and uh, the, all the new not just left the dial but all the new remixes sound really good i mean the, the sounds were all there it just got i don't i don't know what happened in mixing but what didn't help is that first digital mastering made it even worse um 'Cause I got I also remastered the main mixes for disc two. And there's a lot more low end there than I expected there to be on the actual mixes. Something sure. super you know, when Pleased when pleased to Meet Me and Tim first came out on C D, CDs were such a new thing that the, the mastering I don't want to say it got screwed up, but it just the, the technology was so primitive, there was no standards, you know, it just sounded really thin and bright and weird and Uh, wasn't as good as it could be and it also wasn't necessarily representative of what it sounded like in the studio at the time Uh, some i think some they were still ironing out how to get audio on cds and have it sound good
1: i mean it's almost like you were talking about earlier with like you know recording the obsoletes to tape instead of uh you know want not not wanting to go all digital back in the day because it's the same thing i feel like in the early 2000s pro tools and all that there's still all this, you're you're almost, you're still learning about it. Like there's all these kinks still, it's not perfect. And it's kind of the same thing. A lot of that new technology in the eighties, those are some of the first albums to really be using some of that stuff. So all the kinks and all the things that can go wrong, probably going to go wrong during that.
0: Yeah. Cause you know, I was comparing what I was doing to the, I, I bought an original CD on Discogs. I got a pretty early version from, from Rhino and Warners from their vaults. And then I compared it to the 2008 remaster, which some people think was too bass heavy. So I just wanted to find a happy medium, but to my surprise, the actual mixes weren't as weird as most people think they are. Um, because of that, the the the, C, the first CD mastering just got kind of botched or something, you know, something was weird about it. So I'm not saying the remaster sounds night and day different, but it might be like, afternoon and night different, if you know what I mean, or, <laughs> um, you know, somewhere in between. So um, I'm curious to see the reaction to the remaster of the, you know, disc two is the remaster of the original mixes. Disc one is all Ed's new mixes. And, and Ed did an amazing job, not just mixing it, but piecing it all together because with analog tape, it's not like you're opening a Pro Tools session and it's exactly how they left it. You know, Ed had to go through and do some detective work, and it's like, okay, there's three tracks of vocals. Like, which, which was the, which was the final vocal take, and did they use any bits from a different track for certain lines? You know, like, replacements fans are gonna notice that. Like, if there's one word or one line that's different, that's replacements fans are gonna notice that. So he had to like, and same with guitar parts. There, there was probably some songs that had a whole mess of extra you know lead guitars this and that and he had to go through and say okay this got used on the original album this didn't get used they used a little chunk it's again it's not like opening a pro tool session and everything is where you left it with analog tape there could be tons of stuff on that tape that didn't get used and there could be certain tracks that only got used for part of the song and um you know, and that's what I was talking about with mixing the obsoletes record is you had to do that all by hand. When the tape played, you had to move stuff or mute stuff or turn stuff, you know, all that stuff was done by hand. Um, and, you know, consoles became automated to some degree over the decades, but for the most part, it was a very hands-on operation. And if you pull up that, if you pull out that reel of tape decades later, there's some detective work that has to go on to make sure you have all the right vocal takes and the right lead takes and 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 just going through it all to figure out what's what because it's not like you just put on the reel of tape and everything's magically perfectly there just as it you're not starting from where the other mix left off you're basically it's like you know it's like if you know they recorded the record and the first mix was a puzzle you're basically putting all the pieces of the puzzle back in the box and Ed had to put the puzzle back together again to make it what it is. Aside from sounding good, just getting the right parts in place to, to be the mix again was a job in itself. So he did an awesome job. And I really liked listening to it. And, and I think other people will too. You know, the, I think the new mix was unexpected and kind of jarring. But I think when people hear the whole record in context, with this new mix it's going to be like a whole new record to some people and I've, i'm even getting messages from younger people that um younger than me that never really listened to the replacements much they've only heard of the replacements and they just and they just really are liking the new mix because it sounds a little more like something, can they, can, yeah, something they can relate to instead of just this weird tinny reverby kind of thing which i understand has this charm and You know, the Replacements were a flawed band, so to have a flawed mix fits the motif in a lot of ways. But similar to the Beatles remix, you know, I'm a fairly big Beatles fan, and their albums have been getting remixed. Um, It's a political topic as well. Even if you don't love the new mix and you prefer the old mix, a lot of times the new mixes help you hear things you didn't realize were there. Or, you know, there's people even saying they're hearing, you know, lyrics they're actually understanding the lyrics more on this new mix you know they didn't realize he was saying this they thought it was something else and stuff like that so even if you don't end up preferring the new mix i think it helps you appreciate the old mix when you listen back to it again because now you can hear better what they were doing and you still have that old mix to listen to but now you can you know what's going on a little more
1: no i mean the old album never goes away that's why i don't get with people who do who who get that way where it's like, oh, I want it to be like it, you know, like it's been for 30 years. Like, it's not like that goes away. You can still very much go listen to the old yeah. version. It doesn't disappear. Yeah, it's,
0: still, it. yeah, it's yeah. still there. And you know, I think even more so than Don't Tell a Soul, I think the majority of replacements fans have been wanting this album to be remixed for a long time. So oh, sure. that wish is fulfilled. The old version is still there. Um, and I also feel like the majority of comments I've seen are people that really like the new mix. And again, this is just one song, and it's kind of—it was an interesting choice. It wasn't the song I would have picked to do first, but I'm not a—I don't work at a record label. But again, "Left of the Dial" was apparently an Alex Chilton-produced song, or at least session. Um, so it's kind of the oddball. It's kind of the odd man out of the album. Um, it's the same take. It's not—I'm not saying it's a different version than the old album even on the old record it was, that song was from a different session so i uh, it is and is more or less live with the addition of alex's backing vocals whereas the rest of the album that has a few more overdubs and was more produced you know those new mixes just sound great and uh my favorite i don't say my favorite but th- if i could listen to any song off of it right now because i've i've taken a little break from it i did most of this work at the end of last year and very early 2023 so I've, i have i have not heard it and in a you while
1: can for a while you, you yeah. could remove yourself from it for a while
0: yeah I've, I've had some distance from it um there's a song called having fun that tommy stinson wrote and uh to me that's the standout track of at least the bonus tracks and uh I don't know how much you've listened to like the please to meet me set, but some of his tracks. Um, oh, I loved them. I love, it was so song. rad
1: to hear these uncovered, like before yeah. that, you had, like satellite. And all of a sudden they're like uncovering all these Tommy saying, uh, songs. I love them. Those are, yeah. those are the best parts of the please to meet me box set.
0: Same here. And Tim doesn't have that, but what it has is he, a song that he wrote. I didn't hear it, but apparently there's a couple, there's a vocal take of Tommy trying to sing it. And it, He's pretty young at the time, still, and it it just didn't get used. Um, And then they, you know, Paul did a couple vocal takes, and they and Ed remixed that song. And somehow that song's never been bootlegged. And I could be wrong, but Bob, according to Bob Mayer and Jason at Rhino, and we can't really find any evidence of that song being bootlegged before or released. So it's kind of a cool, in my opinion, it's going to be like a replacements fans hearing a brand new song that's never even been bootlegged that would very easily be one of the in my opinion one of the better songs on tim mm. um it has a it has a a hint of who in it too um mm. it's like um one of, in my opinion it would if they would have put it on the record it would be way above you know like dose of thunder and uh lay it down clown get a lot of flack for being throwaways um so if that's your barometer i think way above those two songs um you know not quite like a nowhere is my home track but it would be a it would have been a great song on the record um for some reason it just got shelved and never got used so not only is it you know a great song but it's going to be like a uncovering a time capsule here to, to for people to hear that song and uh yeah the especially the chorus just gives me kind of a, a Husker do" kind of vibe with some cool uh, you'll, you'll hear it eventually, but that to me, that's the one of the more exciting bonus tracks and it never really occurred to me, but you know, Noah is my home is such a highly regarded song. The mix on that, it, it was super weird. It's never really had a great well done mix and, and it, it didn't have the same problems that um, t- Tim had, but it had different technical problems and, so to have, finally have a really solid mix of or is my home. I think people are going to be happy about too.
1: Oh, I'm, It's one of my favorite replacement songs. I can't, I can't wait to hear that with the, I mean, cause again, like these box sets, I mean, you know, people listening to this are probably big replacements fans. Oh, you know it, but like those box sets are full of like rarities and unreleased stuff. I mean, when they, when they put these together, I mean, is, is this, we hearing pretty much everything from the sessions and vaults, or I mean, is there still stuff they're not putting on these box sets? You know what I mean? Cause like you're talking about sorry, ma you look at all the tracks on that. It's like, I mean, is there anything even left at that point?
0: I would say for sorry, not for sorry, ma probably not. I have to look through my emails and my archives. I feel like there was one song on the Please to meet me set that got sort of um, vetoed at the last minute. And it might've been one of Tommy's songs and it, I think it's been bootlegged, but this would have been a really good resolution way to hear this particular Tommy song that I think got vetoed at the last, near the last minute for whatever reason. Um I Maybe mean, just didn't want it out there, but I think you're hearing probably 99% of it. I feel like if, you know, in 20 more years, if they do f- start doing these reissues again, I don't think you're going to get anything new. Um, I don't think you are going I think this is based I don't want to say bottom of the barrel but you're getting you know everything. I think at that point they would just they could maybe do a unreleased compilation of maybe 10 12 songs, but I don't think you're going to get even more expanded editions. This is pretty much everything that's going to you know there's stuff that came out on Sorry Ma that got vetoed the first time around uh, by by Paul and, and I don't think the record label wanted to do such an expansive, I don't think Rhino wanted to do such an expansive version in 2008. They just didn't think the, there was the market for it, but starting with, you know, well, starting with Bob's book, he did all this research and discovered all these tapes. He just, he sort of discovered Maxwell's and that it could be a, a live album. And that sort of proved to Rhino. I think that there is a market, there's an appetite in a market for this stuff. Um, and that they can do these expanded sets so yeah I mean I guess you know I can't speak for every album but for the albums we've done that's that's basically everything you know everything and a little more probably that you know that I don't think there's any big secret you know the people were worried about the Tim set and trying to fill that up but the bonus disc filled up you know pretty nicely actually um, especially uh, again with, with having fun being co- sort of the in my opinion the highlight of it um just because of it's never been heard it's, it, it'd be like going back in time and hearing a new replacement song nice you can't you oh, can't yeah. do that you can't really there's not many chances to do that but this is one of those chances and it's a very strong song so
1: i mean again like it's it's so crazy to to think for the longest time i mean up and up until like that please me meet me one i mean besides like satellite maybe one other bootleg things like that like i who knew tommy had so many songs that even they get released like that he sang on and stuff like so many of these things just and for the i mean over the years there's been lots of bootlegs and expanded stuff come out but the fact that more is just i don't know it, it blows my mind it makes me happy as a fan to find it all as well or you know for them to kind of discover all of that cuz yeah i mean that it's like everything anything and everything you get five different versions of the same song but i like that i like i like going through and you know, kind of hearing them all. But I want to I want to ask you, because we kind of talked about it a little bit, but I mean, going back, remastering, working on something that has existed for decades, I mean, you know, you're, you're going to get people, which I, I love the mix of Left of the Dial. I'm kind of like, if you're not married to that original one, if you just play someone off the street that today, they'll have no problems with it. It's just somebody who's listened to the same mix for 30 years or whatever. But for you, for the mastering side, like, I was kind of interested in this you remastering something versus you mastering new music. Cause obviously you do both. Is it more difficult to remaster something in the sense that you are going back to something that did have a foundation that people have heard a certain way versus you go master a new album, you know, that you're setting, you're setting that foundation. I mean, is there any more difficulty to remastering versus mastering something new?
0: Um, the difficulty can be kind of in the detective work again, like just, simple things is, you know, recreating the song transitions, like two songs crossfade together or something. Um, you also have to be careful. A lot of remasters get a bad rap because, um, they get mastered too loud. I mean, a lot of records from the early nineties and earlier. So I'm talking like anything between the sixties and early nineties, you know, there, there was no such thing as digital limiting to squash the waveform, um, So a lot of these, a lot of times remasters get a bad rap because it's classic music that you're used to hearing a certain way with dynamics and breathing room. And then they get crushed with a digital limiter and they sound a little harsh and unnatural and um, things like that. So I'm very careful to not over squash things if it's, if it's from the early nineties or older, because, you know, I don't want to get those complaints about being, you know, over compressed over limited stuff like that so it's not necessarily challenging it's just you got to be very careful to respect the music and a lot of you know maybe not the replacements but some of the other remasters I've done I mean I've done records that were extremely well produced and then mastered by like Bernie Grundman, who is one of the greatest mastering engineers of all time and he's been doing it for a long time and he's one of the grandfathers of mastering so I mean how are you going to beat that? You know, your job is to be very delicate and do as little as possible. Um, But at the same time, even the greats like Bernie Grunman, they were using maybe not at the time, you know, the digital tools were pretty terrible compared to what we have now. So, you know, you might have had a great engineer working on it, but he might've not had the best digital tools compared to what we have now. So, there's usually improvements that can be made, but um, sometimes you got to just tread very lightly and and not change too much, you know, and, and not to get into a big discussion, but, you know, with mastering, we're not changing the levels of instruments or reverbs, or we're just adjusting the overall loudness and EQ of the whole song or whole album. You know, I can't, I can't go in and turn the drums up or down. I can't remove the eighties drum reverb in mastering. It's all baked in. Um, So, and, you know, Pleased to Meet Me had some challenges because Paul has a very sibilant voice and Pleased to Meet Me was one of the first all digital recordings from my understanding. Arden had just put in a digital multi-track recorder. So instead of doing it on two inch analog tape, it was a digital system and analog tape can kind of absorb, um, you can kind of overload the tape and it kind of breaks up and saturates cool and it can absorb some of the high frequencies and give it a warmer softer tone well digital is not forgiving even and back then it was actually kind of harsh sounding so a lot of the s sounds on the first please to meet me are super loud if you listen to the original master anytime there's an s it's just like as loud as the whole band and that's just not natural to my ears so i went through and Every time there was an S, I used a program that's basically like Photoshop for audio. You know, I didn't just put a de on the whole mix because that's going to impact the cymbals and acoustic guitars and anything with the high frequency. I had to listen in real time, and when there was an S, I could circle the S with, with the lasso tool and then just dim it a little bit. You know, I'm not removing the S, but just making it a little less brittle because it was a digital recording, and going into digital reverb and it just got a little too harsh in my opinion for my ears. so i had my goal there was and i also got more you know like i said with some remasters it's like do as little as possible because it's already amazing i got a little more direction from uh, luther dickinson which is jim dickinson's son about trying to make it a little more um a little warmer in the low mids i had to get I had to use that word warmer and talk about too much technical stuff, but he just thought it was apparently his dad never cared for the CD master of please to meet me and just wanted it to be a little more um, pleasing to the ears, you know, a little more warmth in the low mids, feel the bass a little more and not have the high end be so brittle. So I probably shifted that more than I would have without any direction. Cause you know, who am, it's not really for me to say exactly how, if something's been established, like please to meet me, it's not my, you know, who am I to say it's all wrong, but they gave me specific instructions of, you know, maybe what their dad wanted to hear. And, and, uh, you know cause again, CDs were new at that time. So he just apparently thought the CD was a little brittle and bright and harsh. So I took bigger, I did bigger changes on that one, as opposed to like other remasters, you know, like, Like the, uh, uh, why am I drawing a blank? Friday night is killing me. You know, that was done in the early to mid, you know, 92, 93, but that was a pretty loud record. That's when they finally had digital limiting to make stuff super loud and, and stuff like that. So anyways, it's a little bit of a, you know, always mastering is always a tread lightly situation, even new albums. It's like, I assume that people, love what they send me they've done their best work and it's my job to just get it over the finish line um you know i don't go out i don't set out trying to change it a lot you know i try to do as little as possible to get it where it needs to be
1: no that's all really interesting it does i think for people listening to who again maybe maybe blur the lines of production and engineering and mixing and mastering and all that kind of kind of telling what the differences actually are and kind of what you're doing when you go in there and master and remaster, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting, actually. It is very interesting kind of like hearing that stuff, but yeah.
0: Um, yeah. I mean, it's, I know. Yeah. I mean, people don't always know the difference between mixing and mastering and I don't expect them to, but you know, mastering is, it can be important, but you know, it's not like, well, the Ed Stasium remix is a great example of how to make it almost opposite of what it was. That's what you can do in mixing. There's no way, the best mastering engineer in the world could never take the original Tim mixes and transform it into that. It's just, it's not even possible.
1: It's not uh, not a thing you can
0: do the best you're going to hear is comparing, you know, disc two of the new set to, you know, what you remember of the digital version of Tim and see, see what you think there.
1: You know, I mean, at this point, is it safe to say that, I mean, are they, are they trying to, uh, you think every replacements record is going to get this treatment? I mean is that kind of where we're going all the full links and maybe even stink for good measure?
0: Yeah, I think they'll hit them all eventually. I know they're going in no particular order. Um I think, you know, All Shook Down is a good one because there's probably a lot of, you know, Paul has a lot of home demos of that record. Oh yeah. And the obvious live show is their original last show in Chicago that i've heard that there's a good multi-track recording of that could be um you know the broadcast mix is pretty good already but it
1: goes out somewhere though right because i have a bootleg of that and it's good but somewhere in the broadcast yeah I think it kind of loses it kind of i can't remember entirely but it loses a little something
0: yeah so i think you know the, all shook down i would imagine for sure we'll get and i don't i haven't started out any new i don't know what they're thinking next i'm just throwing out you know, I know All shut Down would have a lot of bonus material and a great live show to go with it. Um, Let It Be, you know, there seems to be a lot of outtakes and stuff like that for Let It Be. Um, you know, Stink "Stink" was apparently done in a day, basically, so probably oh. not a lot of outtakes. So, I mean, we're, we're, we are t- we're definitely turned a corner with this one, but I think there's still more in there. It's just, I don't think it's been decided which one to tackle next. You know? I was
1: wondering that if they had a thought process of, cause you're right. I mean, it's not like they're going, it's not like they started at sorry, Ma and started working their way. I mean, just start with dead man's pop and then kind of work all around. So yeah, I was wondering that if they had a rhyme or reason to that, or it was just kind of like, I don't know, maybe they unearthed this. So this year they're doing this one and next year they'll do this one.
0: No, I mean, I think sorry, Ma was chosen because it hit a, it was a 40th anniversary that worked out That's well. Right. That's a nice even number. Um, You know, please to Meet Me was tough because we did that early in COVID. I mean, I remember when COVID hit, you know, nobody knew what was going on. And I'm like, man, if bands can't record, how am I going to keep mastering their music and stuff like that? And it ended up being fine. But early on in COVID is when they they first approached me to do, you know, I got an email from Jason saying we're going to do Please to Meet Me next and here's some stuff. And I'm like, okay, that was a huge relief to get, that email because those projects are a little more involved than like your typical new album. But it was, it was a little bit hard, I think to get sources because a lot of the stuff is in the vault and like early on in COVID, you know, people weren't leaving their houses and if they could see that we had, you know, there was a tape that existed, but it hasn't been digitized yet. You know, it was a little harder to get like, you know, some of the vault materials transferred and you know it wasn't we we still made a good box set out of it but i remember covid being a slight not a not a big hampering but it was definitely a factor of like okay covid's not going to be a good one time to do something that involves a lot of tape transferring and uh they kind of needed something that was already in the can so to speak um but now that we're out of covid you know anything's possible um as far as digging up sources if anything needs to be transferred or and stuff like that it's we're pretty much back to normal but yeah, i would say the Mommy maybe maybe who knows you know peter jesperson has such a collection of live recordings it's possible that he has a, a good live show from that era i have no idea what's next to be honest with you um, we're just kind of catching our breath from finishing this one up because so much goes into it behind the scenes I mean, i just do the audio but i mean bob and jason are doing the liner notes the marketing the all that stuff is it's a lot of work to do these reissues
1: i mean credit to everybody who puts them together because it is like a i mean the fact that it's called let it bleed i mean you can tell people care when they put these out they're not they're not thrown together it's kind of a if you're a replacements fan you're like oh like the references in there all the all the different things you get It seems like it's lovingly put together. Not like like you were talking about, like even getting you in the mix where they didn't just go, well, shit replacements records sell right now. Let's just throw something together. It seems like there really is time and effort put into these things.
0: Definitely. I mean, Bob and Jason have been incredible just digging up stuff and coming up with ideas and, you know, it just helps so much that Bob wrote that book, um, Cause he just ended up digging up so much stuff, you know, f- finding tapes or realizing that they did a session here and where are those tapes and um, finding live shows and, and all this putting all the pieces together. It really opened a can of worms of stuff. And, you know, I think Jason's, I think one of Jason from Rhino's first project was either Maxwell's or dead man's pop. You know, he's was somewhat new to Rhino at the time and, Got the green light to, you know, let's try and do these. And as long as people keep having interest in them, you know, it seems like there'll be a budget to put them together. So, Uh, but it is a lot. And one of the great things about, I mean, about the collections are Bob's liner notes and the, the photos they come up with. So, I mean, if you're a fan of replacements or any of these bands that are getting the deluxe treatments, I mean, the the booklets and the pictures are just something you can't get online and oh, totally. i think um, it's just fun to have an actual physical copy of of this stuff even even if you never played the cds you know just to get the booklet and uh, all the pictures and stuff is really cool
1: nice nice no i mean I'm, I'm excited as i'm sure everyone else is to uh hear the new box set just a couple more for you here we'll start like closing sure. this out but i did have a couple people send me uh listener questions who uh Wanted to ask some stuff, and we had a couple of good ones actually. So I had to ask you them. We had one from uh Peter K, which I liked. What song off Tim do you think benefits the most from the remaster? I like that when you're when you're like listening yeah. to it. They're one you think like, oh wow, that that one really benefited the most from it.
0: Um from the remix or the remaster? The remix, probably Ooh, right?
1: good point. Yeah, yeah. Remix, remix he was
0: asking. Okay, um. I really like I'll buy from the remixes because that's one where I think Ed kind of had to throw in some of the reverb and effects because the vocal has such a distinct slapback kind of delay. Um, And there's the part where there's some parts where it stops and it's just vocals basically. And if it was totally dry, it would just sound weird. So Ed did a good job of bringing in some effects when it was needed Um, so i'll buy is good um here comes a regular is so different now in a good way everything's just sounds like it sounds like paul sitting in your living room playing the song for you it's just so intimate you know it's just like everything's dry and nicely recorded it's in a way it's hard to believe it's the same recording um here comes a regular and uh i think I think waitress in the sky is one that stands out too. Cause it just has a little more beef to it. You know, they all do, but, um, it's just, yeah. So probably those three, I mean, it's hard to pick a favorite, but those, those couple are my standout, you know, the ones that really benefited. And then I will say that swinging, I'm not saying it's my favorite or I'm not saying it's not, but swinging party is another one where they really, um, reverted back to like a lot of reverb on the vocals and it it uh you know it's not as dry and sounding as some of the other remixes you know so they did with a slower song like that i think they realized it's better to keep some of the the bigger reverb sounds on it
1: nice nice i uh one from richard datson he was asking if anything surprised you that you came across while remastering it probably like some of the whether whether it is a something something in the track you never heard before or you know something you were kind of surprised by
0: yeah i'll say in general i mean you you can understand lyrics better in the new mixes um i really i'm really happy with the remaster of the old mixes too i think dose of thunder um it, say what you will about the songwriting itself and stuff but i feel like the remaster on just two of dose of thunder is a little more under control and part of that might be because i had computer technology to help rein it in instead of just relying on you know analog technology um it just needed a little dose of thunder needed a lot of a lot more repair like almost repair work or restoration work to that mix so it's it's weird um so right away i think dose of thunder just kicks in harder and it's just a little more under control in a good way. Because, I mean, it's supposed to be a out-of-control rocker kind of it's song. noisy.
1: That opening is noisy. I know what
0: you're talking yeah. about. It's yeah. very noisy. Um, and A Little Mascara, that's, that's another probably standout remix. There's some really cool Bob guitar leads at the end of that song that either were buried or not used in the original mix. And a very cool scream from from westerberg um at the end of little mascara so little mascara gets pretty epic at the end on the new mix
1: nice nice well i mean beyond uh beyond the the new uh, tim box set any other projects you're currently working on anything else going on in the uh world of mystery room mastering you can talk about
0: well i'm always working on stuff that's the thing like mastering like i said i mean i'm doing like a record a day probably Jeez. Well, or, you know, a bunch of singles in the EP. Um, Lydia Loveless has been drop rolling out a new album um, on bloodshot records. I think there's two singles out now and I really enjoyed working on her album. Um, She actually, Lydia actually played it when I was playing with bash and pop, we played in Ohio and she sang um, anybody else with, with us, the bash and pop song. Um, I think it was in Columbus. Um, but I didn't really meet her. Like she just came up on stage and sang it. And then that was it. But um, some people, I, um, this guy, Sean Sullivan from Nashville. I'm not sure if he fully produced it, but he basically produced it with Lydia and mixed it. And he did a great job. It's more, more of a rock album than a country album, in my opinion. Um, So it's more of more rocking album for bloodshot records, but her album's pretty good. I don't know. You you caught me off guard. So I'd have to look at my (laughs) calendar, but, you know, she's, uh, that album's kind of stands out and I don't know what else I'd have to look at my you're thing, working but, on a
1: lot, man. That's a good sign. You don't know because it means you're working on a lot of things.
0: Yeah. I mean, I do a lot of remastering for universal and a little bit for rhino. And if you're really interested, you can always check my Instagram. I try to post some of the highlights on the, on Instagram. In fact, I'm going to just take a quick peek at it right now and see, um, if anything pops out that I'm totally spacing on, but probably not.
1: Um, That will be the thing though. You won't think of anything now in like 20 minutes after this interview, like 30 different things you're working on will pop in your head. Yeah.
0: I mean, I've in the last year or so I've done solo albums for both of, the. I shouldn't say both Mike and Pete from the figs and, and the latest figs album. And they're one of my favorite bands the figs and they're actually playing here in madison this week so i'm looking forward to getting out of the studio and hearing music in real life for a little bit here
1: do you i know we talked about how you don't you know road road dogging and touring a lot's not really a thing you're interested in but do you ever miss the fronting of a band like i know with tommy you were kind of doing a little more of the side thing i mean do you ever miss doing kind of more like the obsoletes thing or is that that's not even anything you really even think about anymore
0: no, it was fun when I was younger and could stay up late and had the energy for that, but I really I'm a pretty quiet even though I've been talking for almost a little over an hour now. I'm a fairly quiet person, fairly introverted. I don't need a lot of social like interaction or I don't need a lot of uh social reinforcement of like hey, you did great. You know, we I, was, I started playing in bands when we were in like sixth grade just for something to do because I I wasn't really into sports Well, I was but I was not I knew I wasn't good at sports and wasn't like into normal stuff so my friends and I just started doing bands just for fun just for something to do and you know we were we were at a young enough age where no one else was really doing it in our peer group so we would get we would get to play at the YMCA or the local show you know if, if the local show needed an opener we would get the phone call to do that and stuff like that um so we just got into it at such a young age just for something to do but it was never like an attention thing or uh you know seeking validation it was just something fun to goof around with friends that turned into something that you know we we had a little bit of success with but i don't miss i don't miss it at all Like I said, if Tommy or someone wanted to do a weekend of shows, I would consider playing it, but no desire to be in an active band again or any of that stuff. I mean, if I got to a point where I could retire early from mastering, it might be fun to do a band again or something, but I I just can't do both. Um, Just from, yeah, I mean, luckily I, I got earplugs about when I was in my, early to mid 20s which I think I was just in time before I was doing any serious damn I mean I'm sure I did a little bit of damage but getting earplugs probably was the smartest thing I ever did because it allowed me to have a career and mixing and mastering and stuff because if I would have just never never gotten earplugs my ears would be destroyed by now so yeah. anyway that was, a, that was a long answer but no no desire I would fill in on base if someone needed it if it was the right situation but for the most part, no, I don't, my bass. a friend of mine has my bass. He needed it for something. And um, I don't have a desire to even have it in the house right now. So
1: yeah, I mean, you do, you do good at mastering. So, I mean, I I think you're in quite a good lane. I think Yeah, it, it keeps
0: like... me very busy. I mean, I mostly listen to podcasts or nothing when I'm out of the studio. It's, it's sad, but reality of working in music is when you're working on music all day, you just, it's not as your brain and ears just can't handle more music. Occasionally I can put on some background jazz or something without vocals, but I don't get to listen to music for fun as much anymore, which is a little bit sad, but the cool part is I get to listen to music all day for a living. So it's, I'm not complaining whatsoever, but the idea of working in the studio and then going to a band practice or whatever is not, not interesting to me whatsoever.
1: No, I I mean, I, I, on top of doing this, I work at radio and the last thing I want to do at the end of the day is listen to anyone else doing interviews or podcasts. I, I totally understand 100% where you're coming from. Eventually when you're doing it all day, the fun thing isn't getting away from work by doing more work basically.
0: Yeah, but I had fun when I was younger. I'm glad I got into it and it all led to a lot of cool things, but I'm, I'm definitely pretty much over it. (laughs)
1: well man i will tell you the second the second the obsoletes do a reunion tour i'm there i'm following i'm following it all across the country
0: i mean i wouldn't rule out the fact that we could do a reunion show at some point somewhere but yeah like i said i would have to have a nice break from mastering and working in the studio before i have the bandwidth to make a bunch of racket
1: understandable
0: in, in a room
1: no, Justin. I mean, this is, this has been a blast talking to you. Love to have you back sometime, but I mean, as we close this out, you want to tell people again where uh, we can find you online mystery room mastering. I mean, who knows? Maybe somebody's even maybe people are out there looking for a mastering job, I mean, where, where can we find you online for all this stuff?
0: Well, mystery room mastering.com is the main website. It has links to all the social media um, places. I'm active like Instagram and Twitter, um, LinkedIn, So right on that front page, you can click on any of those icons and see what I'm up to. I have a link tree that I don't have memorized, but maybe you can put it in the show notes or or wherever. But that also goes to all the websites and uh, some other interviews I've done. I mean, I've written articles about mastering. The mastering website has a page to see how much things cost. And you can even submit your project right on that page without even having to get a hold of me. I mean, it'll come right to me, but you can get, that's kind of the, it was designed that way. Cause with mastering, I'm always asking the same questions like what's your band name? What's the album name? What's the song order? You know? So we made it into a form where people can just submit the project right on the website. And that kind of cuts down on the back and forth and I can sp- spend more time on the music and less time on the, on the emailing. But anyways, mystery is a great hub as well as the link tree. And, uh, if anyone wants to email me about mastering feel free to do that and get in touch
1: nice nice no justin great talking to you again i mean if you're listening to this before september 22nd you got tim let it bleed edition coming out the 22nd of september on rhino records and uh yeah if you're listening to the radio show probably gonna play tons and tons of replacements now we still got an hour and a half so lots of mats to uh, fit in there but i'm anthony merchant talking to justin perkins right here on the power chord hour